Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers Podcast with your host, Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers Podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics, including health, fitness, and training strategies, to name a few. If you enjoy the show and wish to support, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon or wish to make a one-time donation, please visit the show PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPO pod. Links to both of those can be found in the show notes. Also, consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform and on our video version of the show hosted on YouTube. For updates and notifications, please visit my social media channels at Zach Bitter on Instagram, at ZBitter on Twitter, and at Zach.Bitter on Facebook. If you wish to sponsor the show or have any other questions or feedback, please reach out to me at HPOPodcast at gmail.com. Hey folks, just a quick announcement before we get rolling with this episode. I just uploaded 26 unique training plans to my website. They range from 12-week base building plans all the way up to advanced 100-mile training plans. If you're looking for a bit more guidance with your training, please consider checking out my offerings at zachbitter.com. That's Z-A-C-H-B-I-T-T-E-R.com. Once on the site, click the link on the top titled Training Plans and see if anything fits your needs. I'm also looking to continue to add to this catalog, so do not hesitate to reach out with any suggestions. Thanks, everyone. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of HPO. I have an exciting guest today, uh, Evan Dunphy. And Evan is exciting in a few ways, in my opinion. One is we haven't had a race walker on. We've had a lot of endurance athletes from, you know, cycling to the Xterra running obviously is one of my focuses. So a lot of times we have running related folks, specifically ultra marathon, but race walking is a new one. Uh, Olympians, a new one. And I think this is going to be a fun one to chat with just because Evan is a, uh, he was fourth place in the 2016 Rio Olympics in the 50 kilometer race walk. And uh, given that the 2020 Olympics got postponed to 2021, he's kind of in the, process of building up for yet again, another, another, uh, Olympic games, but that's not, that's not all he has to share. So, uh, Evan, thanks for taking some time coming on HPO. Oh, my pleasure. I'm excited to be here and, and you know, chat performance. Yeah, it'll be, it'll be fun. I'm, I'm really curious to see just like kind of where the crossovers are with, uh, race walking and just, you know, I guess running endurance sport. Cause I think there probably is, but like the, the thing that I find the most interesting is just at first glance, when I think of race walking or, or um, what most people maybe think of when they think of race walking is they think like walking in general is this like process where when you get to a certain pace, eventually you just kind of phase into like jogging, at least jogging slowly. And they probably put that point somewhere around like maybe 14, 15 minutes per mile or something like that. But then when you look at, if you take, to even take like 10 minutes just to research the sport of, uh, of race walking, you realize that crossover point can be much, much faster when you develop that skill set. Cause uh, we were chatting a bit about this before, before I hit record, but like your, your 5k PR for race walking is under 19 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and, and I'm not a particularly, you know, 
speed focused race walker. Um, you, you know, got, you got guys going 1830, uh, 1807, I think is the world record. Like these guys are, yeah, you're, it's moving for sure. It's always fun going out and doing like a park run and, and, and just, you know, having some of these top runners just super surprised and they see you race walking beside them. And it's, it's so much fun. Mm -hmm. You know, at one point I had a feeling there was more to it than I knew because I was, I was actually talking to Jeff Galloway. He had presented at a race I was at, he had, he does know the run walk strategy for marathoners. And you know, that, that phases, you get to the, some of like the, the kind of his elite plans with that strategy. And he had mentioned to me that he, the fastest guy he had was like under two and a half hour marathon. And at that point they were ratioing it, like, I think somewhere in the neighborhood of eight or 10 to one run to walk. But, you know, if you're going 230 in the marathon, you're averaging 545 pace. So even if you're walking for a 10th of it, you got to be moving pretty quick in order to keep that average down. So I think that was maybe one of the first times I got a, you know, I had a hunch that there's maybe a little more to the sport than just, you know, you guys are out there casually strolling around a loop. Yeah, that's, that's super impressive to me. I mean, I've, I've run, I run a half marathon and I think a lot of people would say I looked like I was walking it. Cause you know, <laughs> when it comes to running, I don't have much of a knee drive <laughs> and, um, but I can't imagine switching between the two. Um, you know, I I'm very much a, once I'm doing one, it's hard to hard to switch the body and, and change it up to do something else. So that's, that's mighty impressive to me that someone's out there, you know, walking and running in the same thing. I always find it. I always want to try, you know, that idea when I'm done my career and maybe going to like trying like an Ironman or something. And just when you're at that point into the marathon and you just like everything hurts and you're already tired, like then maybe trying to like do some running, do some walking. Cause they are such different muscle groups and, and, and play around with it. And, uh, you know, I think, I think for a lot of people out there, uh, doing endurance, you know, ultra endurance sport, learning how to do a little bit of race walking is, is something that could be a really valuable tool in, in that, uh, in that toolbox. Yeah, absolutely. Especially when you start looking at what you can do with it. I mean, ultimately it, you, you have to find, you have to, you have a, a certain amount of time you can spend preparing and you kind of have to decide like, where are you going to channel your energies? But I think like, especially when you get into some of the longer ultra races uh, and maybe even some of the shorter ones, I mean, given the paces you guys are hitting uh, there's definitely some application for it. And I think even more so, a lot of times people think like they, they remind them of like those like kind of the trail or the mountain side of the sport where hiking is probably reality for almost every runner, even the winners in a lot of cases in some of these steeper events where it's like, oh yeah, it makes sense to hike up that climb. But you get these timed event races where, you know, you're trying to run on a flat controllable surface for 24 hours. There could be some huge application, especially if your average pace isn't even being hit in a hit negatively from switching up that mechanic. And there are guys and gals who, who do implement walking strategies, but I just, I don't suspect they're quite to the, to the tune of what you're used to. <laughs> you know, I know, I know Camille, uh, Heron used to, used to like started off doing a little bit of race walking. I know that she's still a big, big fan of race walking. It has said, she said a couple weeks ago that she was excited that once her sort of ultra career is done, that she wants to get back into some race walking stuff again. So told her, I'd, I'd try some ultra running. She could take on some race walking. Yeah. Yeah. We need to get you out there for some timed events and see what you can do on that. I think that'd be a really interesting, uh, glance into the sport. And then you probably introduce a whole lot of new training tactics. And, you know, when you get up to 24 hour and some of these, and then in the multi-day stuff, like there's just such little actual research 
in the sport because it's like, you know, there's just not a lot of, a lot of people interested in funding a 48 hour race or a 48 hour endurance race uh, in terms of looking into kind of like what strategies are going to work best versus what aren't. And so there is a lot of kind of just trial and error, I think for folks and to some degree that offers up a, like a fun aspect of the sport, but it also, uh, you know, these people wondering sometimes and in, in a little bit of a, of a gray area come race day. Well, which, and that's such a shame because you know, the, the history of endurance sport and I mean, the history of endurance sport at, in, in America, at least kind of starts with walking, you know, pedestrianism, pedestrianism in the, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, you know, was, was a spectator sport like no other, um, you know, Madison square garden would, would sell out for these six day, six day walks where guys would show up in their, you know, in their tails with their, with their, uh, you know, marching band and their guy would be playing a tuba while he's walking around the track and stuff like you and, and the betting aspect, you know, guys were betting on everything, you know, who would be the first to, you know, to, to, to drop out, who would be the first to take a bite of a sandwich, who would, you know, all this crazy <laughs> stuff. Um, but those six day events are really like, you know, where, where, um, you know, where race walking has its origins with pedestrianism, but really where, where all of sort of this endurance, you know, endurance sports stuff kind of, kind of traces its roots back to, um, it's so it's, it, it's, it's a certainly a fitting place for, um, you know, for race walk to, to pick up a little bit of steam, um, within the ultra community. It certainly, you know, does it, it's not out of place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you'd think you'd see more crossover athletes, actually. Maybe there are, and I'm just not aware of who they are, but like, it would be uh, interesting to look at that. Like, And may- maybe both sports, if they grow a little more, we'll find, so- find a little of that. Although sometimes the growth doesn't always uh, promote crossover because all of a sudden you have to focus on a single distance mm-hmm. on a single environment in order to be competitive any longer. But, um, you know, that's that's just the tip of the spear, more or less. There could still be a lot of interest, I think, from folks who are, you know, doing it as just like, like a park run type of scenario or like a weekend, you know, racer, or someone who just likes to kind of be out there in the environment versus necessarily trying to compete for the win, uh, or, or any position for that matter. But um, that's, that's so that's totally hitting the nail on the head there. Like, I mean, we're kind of approaching this from a performance aspect, but from a health and wellness aspect, one of my biggest things that I'm trying to break down with race walking, um, you know, misconception wise is trying to convince people that, you can still get a really good, like you, all the physiology is the same. Like you can still get a really good workout in, even though you're, you're walking. So you're going a little bit slower than, than a runner would be for the same kind of effort, but, uh, or like, I guess you yourself would be, if you were running at the same effort, um, cause you're kind of restricted by, uh, by the, the technical aspects of that we can get into in a little bit, but, um, you know, trying to convince people that, yeah, you can still get a really good workout in by walking. You know, I can still get my, you know, my VO two max is 75 race walking. I can still get my heart rate up to, you know, over 190. Like you can still hit all of those different things. You're just doing it in a less efficient way. Um, that, you know, makes you go a bit slower, but that less efficient way is also better on your hips and your knees. And so if you're someone out there who's struggling with knee problems and you you're finding that you're, you know, you can't run as much as you used to, that's sort of where I'm trying to like, convince people that walking while it looks funny, like, you know, race walking or or speed walking or power walking or whatever you want to call it. Absolutely. I'm not here to tell people it's the coolest thing on earth and that, you know, it's going to make you, uh, you know, you're going to have, uh, you're not gonna have people staring at you being like, Oh, what's, what are they doing? But 
it's effective. It's a really effective, effective thing to do. If uh, you're looking for some impact, you know, you don't want to be on the bike because you're not getting any impact on the bike or in the pool, but you want to still get out there and get an aerobic workout in um, without the pounding of running race. Walking is that perfect medium. Yeah. And it seems like if like, I'm just kind of uh, brainstorming a little bit out loud here. And it seems like to me, if I were to say, okay, I'm going to start implementing some of this in my ultra marathon training strategy, it would make a ton of sense, especially in some of the phases where I'm maybe focusing on a little more speed work from a target phase. And then, you know, I'm going to be able to do maybe two sessions, possibly three sessions like that during a week before the, the wear and tear of it all kind of like makes it necessitates necessary makes it necessary to recover and kind of catch back up before kind of going through the process again. But there's, there's oftentimes like, you know, easy runs and lower impact runs that are between those sessions, especially if you're following like a hard, easy, hard type of strategy in your training. And I think like maybe instead of going out and running easy between some of those sessions, you could possibly do like practice some race walking technique. Although I guess you'd have to be careful if you get good enough at it to the point where you can drive the intensity up into some of the heart rates you mentioned, you could find yourself going hard every day pretty quickly. Right. Yeah. I guess it depends on like, you can definitely give, you're also, you're still giving your you know different muscles a break um, because you won't, no matter what the aerobic intensity is, you're still not going to have the same impact. So, um, you, you know, you're giving your body a break in that regard um, as well as you're just using different, different musculature. Um, race walking is a lot more, um, you know, whereas running, you're using a lot of your, your, you know, your glute max, your, your big glute muscle race walking is a lot more glute mead because it's a lot more sort of control versus, versus power in that movement. Um, you're using, you're using your hamstrings, you're using your, your tibialis anterior, that front of your shin muscle. Um, so you're, you're using quite a different, um, set of muscles than you would be running. So even if you do like you know, accidentally ramp your aerobic intensity up, which might not, you know, you still don't want to do if you're in a recovery phase, there's still other elements that, that are, that you're giving that body a break between those harder sessions now and then. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, what you said there, like being able to implement it in, in those periods where you're just trying to give your body a little bit more of a break, it's a perfect solution. It's interesting. I was talking about this the other day with a friend about the new, new shoe technology and how that's kind of, you know, almost doing something similar where you're finding people are getting through their longer runs, you know, feeling way more recovered than, than they did in, in an old minimal shoe. Um, it's, and, and, and the benefits of that. So being like, okay, well, here's another, another tool that you can use as getting it through a, a session where you feel like, Oh, I don't, don't feel like that ruined my body afterwards. This is great. Mm -hmm. Um, race walking can kind of be that, that same thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting with the, sh the shoe stuff. I know uh, one of our previous guests, Dr. Jeff Burns mentioned that essentially what it, what he sees it doing is you have a race that was like the marathon, which was kind of like a, a race of attrition where you'd get to like 18, 20 miles in. And that's where it was like, okay, now there's going to be a breakout. We're going to see who's having, who has like fresher legs at the end and who's kind of just, you know, just grinding out that final 10 kilometers. And now with the, the advent of the shoe technology, it's almost like, it's a, it's a sprint off at the end because everyone's legs are relatively fresh compared to where they would have been at at 20 miles in the, in the past. So like, which, which is so boring. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not I, you want. I mean, that's not why you watch the, that's not why you watch the, these, you know, super long endurance sports, you watch them for, you know, for the, 
for that mental grind to, you know, to be able to see that on the athlete's faces, which is, you know, it's great for all, I think it's great for ultras. Cause I think you're going to see more people, more and more people, you know, look to look to the ultras to, as that outlet. Cause yeah, I don't know. Marathons are just kind of boring when everyone does real, you know, kicks <laughs> ass. <laughs> Yeah. So, so I should ask, so is there any good research on the application of though that shoe technology for race walking? Does it give you a similar performance boost? No good, no good research. And, and I haven't really seen many people wearing them. My, my very, you know, uneducated hypothesis is that most of the tech, most of the research shows that the highest responders to the shoe tend to have the lowest ground contact time. And so race walking has such a way way higher of a ground contact time than running does um even your, your highest ground contact time runner is going to be way lower than your lowest ground contact time race walker mm-hmm. if, if that makes sense um so i imagine you know if there i don't see why there wouldn't be a a, a effect i think it would just be a lot smaller um and then because the technical requirements maybe this is a good chance to to explain uh just the technical requirements of race walking so so what basically distinguishes race walking from running is we have two rules um so we have to have one foot on the ground at all times as judged by the human eye um so if you watch us on a slow motion camera and we're going four minutes per k pace we're all kind of off the ground for like a split second if you slow us down in slow motion but the human eye is not very you know our, our eyes aren't great so humans can only pick up things at like four hundredths of a second so we all tend to like be quote unquote cheating um, for about four hundredths of a second because that's kind of the limit of, of what we can get away with. Um, and then the second rule we have is our uh, advancing leg has to be straight at the knee from contact until it passes under our body. So basically, your leg has to be straight when it touches the ground and stay straight until it's no longer your lead leg. And we have judges who are around the course. We so unlike it is a little bit boring. So like we rate our Olympic distances, at least for Tokyo are 20 K and 50 K. Um, and we race on a one or a two K loop. So doing 50 K on a two K loop, um, from an athlete perspective, it's pretty boring. Um, but we do that so that you have the seven judges are spread out and can watch you and, and make sure you're, you're, you're sticking to the rules. Um, but with the shoes, I, I, I suspect as well, like if you're an athlete who has a higher ground or a lower ground contact time, you might be one of those athletes who's on the verge of getting lifting or, or, or having both feet off the ground and getting close to getting disqualified. So if the shoes enhance that in any way, it could actually put you over the edge and, and make your technique not legal. Um, again, I've not like, there's no research in this because there's not, you know, not a ton of, of biomechanists looking at, at race walkers. Um, but you know, just a, just a thought on why some of the athletes, you know, very few athletes seem to be wearing them. Um, I've not tried a pair out, but, but, um, yeah, I, I can't see the other thing that I, that I like to say is that for people that are kind of disillusioned now watching marathons, cause they can't, they can't put the times into historical contexts, 50 K race walk next best bet, because nothing's changed. So we're all still, you know, if you want to, if you want an event that has historical context, watch the 50 K race walk, <laughs> that's my plug. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's the one that I was first made aware of too, is, uh, cause I think, I think when I, when I really first looked into it in any, any amount of rigor, it was, uh, someone had asked me if ultra marathons were in the Olympics or if they'd ever get in the Olympics. I'm like, well, 
technically, I, I knew just enough at the time to know that there was a 50K race walk. So I'm like, well, technically there's a 50K in the Olympics. It's just, you know, they, they, have, they have some protocols they have to follow that makes it limit how fast they can go due to the, the nature of the sport versus, you know, just being able to run in whatever form or technique you want, uh, which I find interesting. But I, one thing I wanted to ask you kind of specifically about that is uh, when we look at someone transferring that skill over into a running sport or an ultra marathon, they don't have to follow those recommend or those, uh, those form tech, the, the form uh, rules. So do you have an idea or is this just like not worth your time to really look into like how much faster you'd be able to go if you could just kind of like, I guess, loosely walk without obviously like you have to like at some point kind of draw a line in the sand with where, when does this actually become running versus walking when you don't have one foot on the ground at all times, but if you're just not having to focus so much on that specific protocol, like how much is that actually slowing you guys down? Yeah, certainly. I think like you, you, you break it up into like both of the, you, you know, if you just lift more and you have both feet off the ground and have more of a flight phase, you're going to go, you know, way faster because you're moving through the air, you're, which you're, and now you're basically running. So the, the trade-off is that as you get more and more off the ground, you're coming down oh, yeah. from a height more. So the impact's going to go up. So that the, the, the benefit of doing the walking, the faster you get via not following the rules is going to sort of eventually just bring you into running, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, but for like the bent knee stuff, like, yeah, like if you're someone who, who doesn't, you know, landing with a landing with a slightly uh, you know, a leg that's bent at 150 degrees rather than 180 degrees, which it needs to be. If that's just easier, that's going to be less impact on your joints as well. And you're not being judged. So it doesn't really matter. Like, you know, I, I help, uh, quite a few, um, you know, masters, masters athletes who are just walking for, for fitness. They're not going to go into a race. They don't care if their technique's perfect. So we don't pay attention to the knees at all. Just sort of, you know, working on, getting onto the heel, like landing on the heel, rolling to the foot, pushing off on the toes and, and kind of whatever happens with the knee doesn't really matter too much. I think that's probably where it's more of a, uh, at least for people who are, who are sort of looking to put it in as a recovery tool or just a, a, another tool into their arsenal. That's the one I wouldn't worry about. I wouldn't worry about trying to keep your, your knee straight, just whatever is like sort of comfortable and lets you propel yourself forward, um, as easily as possible is, is the best way to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I think, uh, um, one thing I wanted to talk to you about that you kind of, you started outlining a little bit was just what are kind of like the sensitive spots. When I think of that, like gate pattern, you know, you, I guess I have a couple of questions here. They're like starting to pop up into my mind now, but like when you come down with that outreached leg, you're kind of like, you would almost benefit from like a rocker almost, I would imagine, because you're kind of rolling through that motion is the, like, do the shoes that you guys wear for racing, are they the same as running shoes or do you have your own kind of specific type that actually offer like that sort of a mechanical like flow pattern? Yeah. For the most part, I mean, because the race walk sort of industry uh, isn't very big. Um, we've mostly gotten away with just ha- only having access to what the runners have access to. So, um, you know, you get a lot of athletes racing in, um, you know, sort of min- not, maybe not minimalist, but sort of your, your, your racer, like your new balance 1400 or, um, your adios boost type of thing. Um, 
there is a company now that I'm, that I'm sponsored by. Um, they, they work with the decathlon. They're called Newfield and they're making shoes specifically for walkers. So they have race walking shoes. They have hiking shoes. They have Nordic walking shoes for people with poles. And, um, and that's sort of, there's this, they're, they feel like there's a market that's big enough to, um, you know, to make shoes for walkers. And, and the, the difference I've seen in those is, is that there's some way more flexibility in the toe because you're kind of landing on your heel. And as you roll to that foot, you're really trying to, um, you know, roll through the foot and push off on the toes way like in a, in a, in a different angle than, than running is, or w- when you would with running. So the shoes, um, have, have great flexibility in the forefoot, um, which is, which is super handy. Um, but you know, for, for people out there just listening, like it's not necessary to go out and get a specific walking shoe. If they're interested in it, like your, your typical running flat, um, works just fine. So are the flats kind of preferred because of the flexibility aspect then, since you are probably really, really working that foot muscle in a, in a full range uh, like just a, a, a flat compared to a sort of, a, a thicker sold. Yeah. If you had like shoe. a max cushion shoe, that's just going to be a lot harder to kind of contort or bend in any way, anyway. Yeah. Part, partly, I think partly it is too, because the impact is a lot lower. You, there's just not as much of a need mm-hmm. for a heavily cushioned shoe. Um, and, and it is nicer. I mean, for me personally, it is nicer to have that little bit more feel with, um, with the ground and, and. And cause there is, you are on your foot so much longer that there's way more stabilization that goes on. So being able to like feel a bit more where that foot is on the ground kind of helps, helps a little bit. But I, I think the main reason would be that you're just the lower impact necessitates less, less cushioning for the same sort of overall result. Mm-hmm. No, it makes sense. So is there, are there like common areas then that tend to get stressed a little more from, from the types of mechanics that you're using? Like, do you do race walkers have like a list of like, here are the injuries you're probably going to run into at some point in your career, just because of the way that's used. Yeah, sir. I mean, it certainly like at, at my level with the guys that I train with like hamstring, like hamstring tendinopathies and, and the odd ham, the occasional hamstring terror, probably like the most common that I see. Um, you have way, way fewer incidences of, of stress reactions and stress fractures. Um, again, just all goes back to impact. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know any, any real serious marathoner who hasn't dealt with, um, you know, with, uh, with at least one stress fracture, stress reaction, in their career versus it's, it's rare to find a race walker who's, who's dealing with, um, who's dealt with, with some stress reactions. So, um, I'd say the injury rate is, is you know, a lot less in within the 50 K race walkers. Um, and from my experience, it's sort of more hamstring, uh, hamstring stuff for people just starting out. Typically what they find right away is that their tib ant is, is just on fire. Cause you know, it's a muscle that basically only dorsiflexes your foot and doesn't get used a whole lot in, in day-to-day life or in running. So when you start race walking, you're using that muscle uh, pretty aggressively with, with your heel strike. Cause you're landing with your toes up and, and that muscle is doing a lot of, you know, it's not, it's not overly it's, it's engaged a lot more than it would be otherwise. And people just, it takes a few weeks for people to like, kind of for that muscle to kind of learn like, oh, okay, I can do this. This is fine. But those first couple of days, I remember one of in university, one of the guys jumped on the track. He was going to try and race walk, um, in one of our races. And I think he got about 200 meters 
side of the road on side of the back, just gripping his shins, just oh. being like, they're on fire. They're on fire. Mm-hmm. Um, that's uh, certainly when people first start out, that's what I, I tend to see that first like week or so, just letting the shin muscle kind of get that neural adaptation where it kind of learns, oh, okay, like this is what I'm doing. I'm fine with that. Um, that and again, not an injury, but sort of the first thing that they start to feel is, is that, is that shin on shin muscle working. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, you change something like that. And it's like your, your body lets you know pretty quickly, like what types of muscles and stabilizer areas that weren't normally getting used as much get used in an aggressive manner. I remember one time, I, th- I think this was in college. We just were joking around. We decided to run a lap around the track backwards just to see how fast we could do it. And it was just like, I, I thought like, well, you, I'll be able to just hammer this thing. And it's like, you get halfway around and you're just like, in worse shape than you were on the 12th rep of a four or a 12 by 400 meter workout. So <laughs> it, yeah. it's so annoying how specific fitness is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I feel that every time I have to walk up, walk quickly up a flight of stairs and I get to the top of the stairs and I'm winded. I'm like, what the hell? Like I'm an Olympic level endurance <laughs> athlete. Like, why can't, why can't I handle these stairs? Yeah. Uh-huh. Exactly. Yeah. It, there's so many examples of that where, where you think, okay, I've got this fitness and it'll, it'll translate over, but not, not, not a lot. And sometimes it's surprising too, because the activity is relatively, I mean, in ultra running, it stands out all the time. It's like, you have flatter races, you have mountainous races and, you know, it's a peak for one. It probably comes at the, 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 the detriment of another to a degree. So it, you see a lot. I think that's probably one thing I've noticed the most of since I started running ultra marathons was just when I first got into it, you'd get talented runners and they could basically do everything and, and compete, if not win, in most cases, if they had a really good day. And now it's like, there, I mean, there's still some, some guys and gals out there who seem to be able to transition from a variety of different environments and distances quite easily. But uh, for the most part, you kind of have to pick something and say, okay, this is where I'm going to really focus my time and energy and perfect it. And there's, there's both some, some beauty to that, but also a little, little monotony as well, I would say. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, certainly. I mean, you look at the people who, who the thing they've chosen, or I, I always see whenever Camille's doing some 24 hour track record and you're just like, that is like, like you could have chosen to go and do some beautiful run through the mountains and you're like, Nope, I'm going to run for 24 hours around this 400 meter track. And he was like, all right, that's amazing. You, you are an incredible human being for even thinking that that's a thing that is fun. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just the fact that, that we got to a point where there's events like that out there is, is kind of, is kind of funny where, you know, you do, yeah, you do a 400 meter loop and, you know, Camille's probably going around that thing in less than two minutes on the first one. And then she's seen the entire course. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. It's interesting stuff. So I'm, I, I'll be, I'm actually kind of surprised Camille hasn't uh, since she has some of the race walking strategy in the back of her mind, tried to implement any of that during some 24 hour ones, but maybe, maybe that's, that's her, uh, in the, in the plan to get to 170 miles for 24 hours. <laughs> um, yeah. So let's, let's talk a little bit about just, uh, what the training looks like to prepare for something like this. Cause I think like, based on what you've told me so far and what I've looked into, it seems like it's going to be from a training standpoint, at least when we look at like the volume of training, you're able to tolerate before it's like, okay, I need to step back and let my body recover. You're going to be able to put in quite a bit more volume than say like the average marathon runner, I would guess. Yeah. Uh, for, for me training for a 50 K um, the volume probably ends up being fairly similar to, to a marathon runner, just a lot more time. It's, it's more time on feet for, 
you know, uh, a 215 marathoner who's averaging you know, four minute Ks for their, for their training for the week versus, um, you know, me averaging five minute Ks doing 20 hours on the, on your, on your legs for the week, that's a 60 K difference, um, in, in total in sort of same amount of time for the, for total distance. So, um, yeah, I, I'll put in, you know, when I'm in sort of a solid build towards the 50 K hundred miles is sort of the standard kind of week, um, get up, get up towards 200 K. Um, the difference I'd say is in like, we'll, I'll do two long, two long walks a week. Uh, so when I'm in my, my, my specific prep for 50 K, we'll be doing 40 K on Wednesday, 40 K on Saturday. Um, and you just don't see many marathoners like being able to back up the double, the double long runs. Um, but again, because of the recovery time being a bit, a little bit less, uh, with race blocking, we're able to do that. You know, after what, for all those 40 Ks throwing in workouts in the afternoon. So doing a 40 K in the morning and then like a 10 K tempo in the afternoon or, or 10 by 500 or something just to really like, you know, smash the aerobic system while the legs are, are super fatigued, um, is, for me, my fun is like when I'm, when I'm fit enough to be able to go out there and rock a 10 K tempo after a 40 K, like that's my happy place. That's mm-hmm. like knowing my body is capable of doing something like that is, is so, so amazing. Um, but other than that, it's, it's very similar to, to, to running where we'll do tempos, Bartlicks, uh, interval sessions, um, won't really do intervals less than 400 or yeah, 400, 500 meters, you know, there's doing two hundreds isn't going to be beneficial for a 50 K walker really. Um, and then we'll push our, our reps out to two, three K doing like, you know, six by three K, um, you know, sort of, yeah, somewhere between 15, 20 K of work for the intervals and stuff like that. It's that's sort of, yeah, again, quite similar to, to what you'd get from a marathon runner. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a, that's kind of an interesting topic, I think too, because I know when you get into like marathon or endurance sport in general, a lot of times people are like focusing on these different intensities. They may be like trying to stay below their aerobic threshold for their easy, easy, maybe up to moderate intensities. And then, you know, they're in a bit of a gray area when they're doing moderate, they may call it like marathon pace in a lot of cases, but then you have like your lactate threshold and your VO2 max type intensities that a lot of times people are targeting for specific workouts that are kind of more on the intensity side or are you doing the same type of approach where you're working on some of those different intensities throughout the course of your program? Yeah, pretty similar. I, you know, I'll try and do somewhere between 85, you know, probably averaging around 85% of my work, like quite, quite easy, um, in that kind of zone one area there. And then the rest of that is just really trying to push it hard with the odd occasional session being at that kind of gray area mid zone, just to work on, on like what that feels like. Um, but, but really trying to that polarized polarized training kind of tries to be what we aim for. It doesn't always work out. I get carried away in easy walks way too often and, and push it too hard. And, and, um, the, the top, top, top end stuff, like really hitting that, you know, over VO two max pace stuff. We don't do a ton of, um, that might just be like me avoiding it, even if it would be beneficial. And I just, I just don't, don't do it enough. Um, but I, I find that it just from a technical standpoint, like it's just, it's doesn't, doesn't give me good habits with my technique, trying to go out and, and, you know, crush three thirties per K, um, for, for only, you know, doing a couple of them at really high intensity, I'd rather do, uh, 
you know, a 10 by one case session, trying to hold everything at, at, at three fifties or, or below rather than doing a few of them at, at three thirty type of mm-hmm. thing, which I always find funny when I'm, you know, when I'm on a training camp with a bunch of athletes and, and we'll do yeah 10 by one case, a pretty standard session. I'll, you know, I remember once one time in Australia leading the guys through like led every single, every single rep through the ninth rep. And then the 10th rep, I think I finished eighth and I went faster than all my other reps. And it was everyone else just, you know, that last rep came, just went balls to the wall. And I was like, well, if you had this much energy, why weren't you going faster yeah. the rest of the reps? Yeah. Yeah. They're sandbagging on you there. The, <laughs> the, you know, the interesting thing I found about what you said there was like, I think with running, like one of the applications for like strides or even some of this like over speed from like a VO2 max standpoint training is you're almost going so fast, like your form is almost forced to kind of like tighten up a little bit. So there's like a efficiency component with that. Whereas it sounds like with you, like when you kind of get up into that part where it starts getting a little shaky as to whether you're going so fast that like, it's really hard to actually maintain the, the technique to the point where it could potentially sabotage the, or throw a wrench into kind of like your, the way you maybe mentally process the, the, the gate cycle. Yeah, exactly. I feel like it just sort of starts, I start to use like slightly different, I start to cheat a little bit more with compensating different muscles and, and, and getting other things that aren't helpful to my race pace technique, sort of being what propels me um, to go those faster paces um, when I can, you know, it just doesn't seem like there's too much of a benefit for that for, for me. And I, I think it's similar, like, you know, in a, in, if you're running a marathon and you, you come around the corner and you see the finish line, you see that, that clocks at, at two hours and 59 minutes and you got, you know, just under, just over 200 meters to go. And you have that extra gear, you know, the knees come up, you, 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 you can change your gait like quite significantly if you have that, that in you to get to that, that line under three hours, if that's what you're aiming for, because of the technical requirements of race walk in a race, you don't have that same last gear gate shift. You're kind of more restricted in, in, you know, what your gate can do. We don't have like a, we don't have like that sprint that's, that's, you know, put off to the side and like, Oh, if we need that, it's there. Um, so what you tend to get is the race, the, the race walk, the, the sprint quote unquote tends to come from further out. So, you know, instead of being a K to go, when you make your move, it's maybe five K to go. And, and there's a lot more, you're a lot more focused on trying to balance. All right. I want to get to the finish line on empty, but I can't have a quarter tank at, you know, at, at a kilometer to go, cause I can't use it all up in that last kilometer. So, um, what's really fun about that is that when you have that more delicate balance, more people get it wrong and you have more people blowing up. Um, and that's, what's great about this. Like the, so the 50 K my, my last 50 K was the world championships in Doha. Um, and like, you know, conditions were insane. It was 32 degrees Celsius, um, and 80% humidity. And we started at 1130 at night. Um, so we're finishing our race at three 30 in the morning and it's still you know, ungodly hot and humid. Um, and it was, it was so much fun because you just guys just got it wrong left, right, and center. And we're blowing up everywhere. And it was, it was, if you were an athlete who got it right, you were rewarded so well. Like I made up, um, with five K to go, I was two minutes behind 
uh, the athlete in third and I beat him by, by 30 seconds. Um, you know, just, just made up two minutes. Like it was like, it was nothing. Um, because when it, when it goes, it, you, you go backwards quickly. Um, which is just, which is one of the things that's so much fun about watching a 50 K race walk is that last 15 K anything can happen. Um, and then when you add in the technical requirements of the athlete, who's in first, even if they're in first by you know, five minutes, they could be on two red cards. That third red card is going to you know, get them disqualified. Nothing is certain until the race is over, which I think adds like another element of just suspense and excitement to it. Um, when, you know, from, from a spectator point of view. This episode of HPO is made possible through our friends at Bioptimizers and their new product, Cognibiotics. Negative feelings and mood can be impacted by the health of your gut. So serotonin has been linked to happiness, much of which is created in your gut. If your gut health is off, it can lead to negative outcomes such as loss of happiness and positivity. Bioptimizers has aimed at tackling this with their product, Cognibiotics, which they call their Breakthrough Mood Enhancer. This formula starts with a solid foundation of prebiotics and probiotics to support gut health and positive feelings in a safe and natural way. Cognibiotics also includes 17 herbs that are linked to enhanced mood, stress management, and improved memory. One of my personal favorite aspects of trying any of Bioptimizers products is their full one-year money-back guarantee so you don't have to take their word for it. Just try it out. See for yourself risk-free. Head over to www.cognibiotics.com forward slash human. That's www.cognibiotics.com forward slash H-U-M-A-N. And throw in promo code HUMAN10. That's capital H-U-M-A-N one zero for 10% off your next order. All right. Now back to the show. Yeah. You know, listening to you describe it makes me want to watch some of the finishes of, of these 50 Ks. Cause I think like part of the problem is if you don't know, like if, if no one has ever heard what you just described, they're at like square zero in terms of understanding the sport. So it's just like, there's not, there's no draw in, but then once you kind of have an idea of like what you're going to, what you're going to potentially see, the excitement kind of builds when you know what to look for. And I mean, I think like I mean, that sounds a lot more like, like the marathons of old where you get mm-hmm. folks taking risks, you get a pack of, you know, 10, 15 people who, you know, one or two of them are going to have the race of their lives and everyone knows it. So everyone has to try to run a little bit outside the box just to be able to like put themselves in a position to win if they want to, or you have to take a strategy of like, okay, maybe I'm going to try to run really, really smart and, pull off a third place finish, but I know I won't beat, you know, two of these guys who take the risks and go for it. And it just sounds like there's a lot more space. And I mean, that's exactly what happened to me in Doha is that, you know, I started off, started, I was, you know, at the back of the pack, like just, just just laughing at the guys up front being like, these guys are going way too fast. They, they, they don't know what they're doing. And, 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 you know, we took the heat super seriously. Like did our, like we were, there was only like a handful of us that, that were in the ice tubs before the race. And, and so I knew going, staying on that start line, like most of these people were, were terribly prepared for it. And so we started off at the back and, and we're just, you know, basically just laughing at the other athletes being like, well, this is going to end terribly for most of them. And then just as the race progressed, like moving up from 30th to 20th to, you know, top 10 to eighth to, and then with, you know, 5k to go being like, oh crap, I could get a medal if I, if I, you know, figure it out here and, and ended up being able to, you know, 
average pace in that 50k was 454s per k and i closed my last k in 412 um you know picked off went from went from fifth to third and last couple k and ended up three seconds behind the guy in second just couldn't quite get to him but you know that whole idea of yeah planning that race well i kind of knew that that you know first was going to be gone because because you kind of give that up right away from the race strategy i chose but then halfway through the race going like oh crap like a medal still on the table here if i you know that wasn't that sort of i never really thought that was going to be the case but okay like let's let's change our focus and, and go for that now um it can't yeah it, it's and the other thing i like about the 50k walk compared to, in a championship perspective rather compared to like a championship marathon is a championship marathon you'll normally get you know that giant group of guys or girls going together uh at a fairly slow pace like you don't typically get a whole bunch of pbs in in championship racing even if the conditions are are pretty good um, and then it becomes like a sort of free-for-all with 10 15k to go the race walk it, the guys don't do that they just sort of say well i'm in this shape i'm gonna go and walk this pace if you can walk this pace, great. If not, I have no problem walking on my own. So in Doha, the guy that won, he led from the gun to tape. Like, wow, no one, <laughs> no one challenged him. Um, same within at a world championship 2017. Yeah. From like 5k in the guy that won just sort of went, all right, I'm just going to go. And if anyone can come with me, good for it. Good for you. But like, if not, like, I'm just going to, you know, make my break for home 45 K out. <laughs> like, yeah. You just don't tend to see that. So it's, it's, it's way more fun because I think you get a way more like athletes are way more willing to just sort of say, Hey, this is the kind of fitness I'm in. If you're better than me, you deserve to win, but you know, I I'm going to make you work for it. Uh, and I, I love that about the event. It's I, I find it fascinating. Is it, is it pretty predictable at the 50k distance to kind of gauge like i'm within say like a two minute time frame of where i'll probably finish if i don't have something major go wrong typically yeah i think you, you there's always going to be surprise because there there's not a ton of races for us each year outside of championship races um so there's always like big surprises because athletes will show up you know and have they had a great year of training and you haven't seen any results from them for the for the whole year and, and so you know they they absolutely sort of blow you out of the water with um uh, out of your expectations. Um, but from a personal, like from an internal point of view, yeah, I think there you're pretty confident, uh, going into about what you're kind of aiming to do and, and what you can do. And then, um, you know, usually it's, it's, you don't usually surprise yourself by going several minutes faster. Um, you can definitely surprise yourself by getting to 35. I've had, you know, so I, in 2016, the Olympics, I finished fourth, uh, which was a huge result for me. Like I had never been anywhere close to that. Wasn't expected to finish in the top 10. Oh, wow. um, like it was a huge breakthrough for me. And it was basically like I had raced the 20 K a week earlier, uh, finished 10th. And I was like, sweet, I got a top 10. That's what I kind of, it was best case scenario from the Olympics. So for this 50 K, I'm just going to like lay it all on the line and like, see what I can do and just stay with the leaders until I can't anymore. And if that means that I drop out at 35 K well, so be it like, let's just see how far I can go. Um, and so that, you know, that was a bit of like, I was in, like, I was in no man, I was in like a new territory for me, like quite early on in that race. Um, but, um, the next couple of years was like, oh, well, I finished fourth at the Olympics. Like now I, you know, now I should be challenging for medals all the time. 
And so putting myself in positions where I was going out with the leaders, even if I wasn't quite fit enough to be doing that and then getting to you know, both cases in 2017 and 2018, I can remember like 35 K being like, I feel great. I'm going to, I'm going to win a medal. Like there's only like four of us or five of us in this group. I just got to beat like one or two of these guys. And I got a medal. Fantastic. And like literally two K later, I was like, I'm not going to finish. Like I am completely destroyed. <laughs> like I am, I don't, I don't see any way in which I'm going to finish this race and then fading to back to 12th and 15th those years. Um, uh, so certainly, yeah, certainly you can, you can, you can oversell yourself to a much larger detriment than you can undersell yourself to, to, a to, you know, on the positive end. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's like any, any sport, uh, even if it's a niche sport, like you get folks who take it seriously enough where, where you're going to be walking a razor thin line, even if it is a fairly predictable thing from say, like I did this workout, therefore that indicates I can probably target this time frame. You know, you're still walking that razor's edge all day or for however long the race is. And, and if something goes wrong and you slip off, then yeah, the, the minutes add up quickly. <laughs> yeah. And, and championship races tend to be, you know, in hotter, in hotter environments. Uh, we, we don't get a ton of ideal condition races. And so, you know, getting it wrong with the conditions, you know, that, uh, so in that race in Doha, I poured over a hundred liters of water on me, um, just to stay cool. Um, you know, and we were tracing, uh, uh, I had, I had one of the body temp pills that I'd swallowed. So we have like all the data from, from, you know, my body, my core temperature, the entire race and, um, saw in retrospect that I like stayed in a very safe position. Like I never really was towing that line of, of, of heat stroke. Um, but there was athletes out there who weren't pouring any water on themselves, who weren't doing, you know, who hadn't pre-cooled, um, all this stuff. And you're just like, well, this is dumb. Like you, I don't care how fit you are. You're throwing your race away by not doing these little things. And that is one thing that always shocks me with, with, um, you know, athletes and how little attention they pay to these things outside of training. Mm-hmm. Cause you can be, and, and that was the case, like the world record holder, he dropped out by like 14 K and just said after the race that like, I just, I, I wasn't prepared for these conditions. It's like, yeah, you're like, six minutes faster than anyone else in this field. <laughs> and, and like, you literally couldn't walk the pace that a slower pace than you train at on a day-to-day basis, um, for 15 K before you were, you were destroyed by it. And like, what a, what a dumb way to throw your race away by, mm-hmm. by not doing like some, a couple little things that, that prepare you for, for the conditions that you're going to race. in. I, 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 I love that for me. Cause I always think of myself as the underdog. I don't think I'm genetically the most talented athlete. I, I think that, you know, my biggest benefit is doing those little things right on the day that kind of close that, close that gap to those athletes who are more genetically talented than me and, and, you know, who, who should be faster than me. Um, so I always see it. I, I love like com- competing in like the worst conditions. Cause I know that, that that'll bridge the gap for me to the front. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, you know, my wife is like that too. She loves going to races where it gets super hot out or, you know, where it's like, that's just one more thing that can sabotage someone else's race plan. And if I know what to do in the heat, then I'm just gonna, you know, do my protocol and, and get on with it. But it is pretty amazing when you look at how much of a difference you can do from a core temp with that topical cooling versus just, you know, trying to like stay on top of hydration or something like that. It's like really hard to bring your core temp down without topical cooling. And if you can find a situation where you're hopping in an ice tub or something like that and bring it down, it can make a pretty big difference. 
Yeah. I mean, we're also, like, we're incredibly lucky. Like, you know, most of your listeners as ultra runners would be shocked at, at just the opportunities we have. Cause we race on a 2k loop. So in Doha, we had ice water available every like 600 meters. We had three, three water stations set up around the 2k loop, um, plus our own personal drink station. So mm-hmm. I was basically able to grab ice water every you know, three minutes. Um, and then at my personal drink staple, able to get like had, uh, ice scarfs and, um, and ice in the ice in the hat and, and all that stuff, um, every, every two K. So, you know, the opportunities for us in race walking to get those things right. And, and to do those, those things it's way easier. Um, same with fueling and, hyd- and hydration. When you have a, you're, when you're able to take your own drinks, every two K every, you know, nine minutes or so, there's no excuse to mess that up. You know, you have, it, it's the perfect environment to, and, and that's one of the reasons why some of the research uh, in nutrition started, has, has used race walkers as a test subject because our conditions, our conditions are in racing are perfect and controllable for, for testing those things out. And um, yeah, it's, it's pretty, that's one of the best things about, about race walk is that you know what you're getting. It's control. Every course is going to be, you know, one or two K going to have two turns at either end. It's going to be basically flat and you're going to have a drinks table that you can plan out, um, your fluids to the milliliter. Like, well, in, in Rio, I had a little scale. I would come by, grab my drink from my, my, uh, uh, physiologist. He would run along beside me on the, uh, so that the drinks table, I would drink, throw the bottle over to him. We had 25 laps. He caught all 25 bottles. We were really proud of that. And he'd go back and he'd weigh the bottle. So he'd record exactly to the milliliter, how much I drank. When I came by the next lap, he'd tell me if I was sort of under or over what we had planned so that I could sort of, you know, the next lap, okay, drink a little bit less, drink a little bit more, um, depending and, and just went from there. And it's like, it's such a, like, you can just control it that specifically. And and that's, I love that about it. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's like the timed events in ultra marathons where you can you can get some like really controlled settings. In fact, uh, I did a race in 2019 at the Pettit Center, the Olympic training facility in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And, you know, there it's even more controllable than if you have like an outdoor 400 meter track where, you know, they had it kept at 60 degrees constant. The light was the same all day because they have the speed skating rink and stuff in there. So like the level of control you can have from just like seeing your splits every essentially every quarter mile or so. And from like a post-race perspective or just like, you know, tracking things like that, like how much fluid did I take and how many calories I take in, what were my macronutrient ratios and all that other stuff is so much easier to, to kind of like keep tabs of. And, uh, it does, it does make it a little more conducive to kind of making tweaks and changes. And I I think that's probably the aspect of some of these more monotonous ultra marathons that's drawn me to them maybe a little more than other folks, because like, I really do like that idea of, okay, now I hit this time in these conditions, I can almost replicate that and then really tease out whether I made improvement or not versus, mm-hmm. you know, going to like Western States on the, on a cold year. And then I, on one of the hotter years, it's two different courses essentially at that yeah. point. It's hard to compare. Yeah. And especially if you're, if you're working on something in training and like you know, say fueling specifically, like having that, that, then that race that's has a previous comparator and say, okay, well, the only thing I really changed was like this fueling strategy and I felt way better. So like, uh, you know, Occam's razor says like, that's probably like what did it for me. Um, it's nice to be able to sort of look to those things and say, okay, well this, this worked. Okay, good. Like I can include this going forward. And it's, yeah, it's nice to have those little check-ins 
Um, even if they're not, you know, if they don't, don't make up the, the bulk of your season, even just having one or two of them that are kind of consistent, even if it's just like, Hey, that, that 10 K loop around your house that you, that you do occasionally, like that's the same all the time. Like using that as your comparator and saying, okay, well, like something's working. Cause like that loop I always do mm-hmm. has gotten better. Um, it's great to have those little things that you can, that are consistent and controllable. Yeah, no, that's a great point. I think it's just good advice for any endurance sport really is like what I, a lot of times will tell folks that I'm coaching is like, if you have a workout that we're using as kind of like a focus point during a specific phase of training, you, let's find a spot that's fairly controllable or that we can at least go back to every once in a while and make some of those, those progress checks. Because if you don't have that, then, you know, you're just in- introducing so much more noise into the interpretation of how things went that it can be hard to really tease out whether you're improving plateaued or taking a step back. And uh, those are all, I think, really good, good points to, to emphasize. Yeah, for sure. And, and at the other end of that, I also like personally, you know, I'll go be going through phases. If I'm not like super fit or if I, if I'm not where I like want to be in my training, I'll go out and do a workout. I've never, like, I'll just make up a random workout that I've never done before so that I can't compare it to anything. Yeah. So that I don't have that, like, oh crap. Like, you know, when I did this workout in 2019 and I, and like I did it in this time, like, no, I don't want to compare myself today. Cause I know that that's going to be bad. So I'm just going to do something I've never done before. And then I can't compare it to anything. I think there's equal merit in that sometimes as well. Yeah, absolutely. I find myself doing a little bit more of that, like kind of earlier in the season, it'll be like, I'll do like maybe a little more of a, like maybe I'll do some intervals uphill on a hill I've never used before so that like the intensity is relative and I know I'm hitting the right intensity, but like the, the, the time it takes me is relatively, or the distance I cover is relatively meaningless and and it helps you kind of get, get past that ego a little bit. Cause no one wants to, no one wants to know I did a kilometer in three minutes at the end of last season. Now I'm only getting a half mile in three minutes. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Oh, this is, this has been awesome so far. One other thing I wanted to, to ask you about with like the, along the training side of things is, are you, are you guys and gals doing anything outside of the actual like walking uh, workouts and things like that? Are you doing strength training things or any type of like plyometrics or mobility type stuff that helps you kind of stay healthy or stay on top of everything? Yeah. So again, similar to running, like I think we've race walking has, has benefited you know, equally in the past decade or so of, of incorporating, um, you know, more heavy strength training, um, you know, trying to really help improve that, that running slash walking economy with the heavier lifts and, and the sort of a little bit more power heavy is still a very relative term. Um, it's, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm still trying to figure out how to like squat my body weight, but it's heavy for me. And that's the important thing. Um, but certainly, yeah, I'm in the, I'm in the gym, uh, once a week and then doing, you know, at home exercises, more sort of body weight, um, stuff, um, fine tuning, fine tuning and, and recruitment of different muscles, you know, a few times a week on my own at home. And, um, yeah, certainly that's a big part of, of the outside training. Don't do a lot of cross training. Um, again, because of the impact being lower in race walk, there's just less of a, of a need for it. Um, so it, most of everything I do is race walking. I will run occasionally, um, a little bit more in my off season. I'll, I'll run a little bit off, more often, but, um, you know, even like I'll maybe do five to 10 K a week of running just if I'm bored and want to do something different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That is interesting when you get into kind of like the lower impact 
endurance sports, like you can spend so much volume doing it. Sometimes it's like, eventually you run out of time to add in any of some of the, like the cross training. And, and you also have that pay attention just to like, you know, keeping your desire at a, at a peak. Cause I know when, when, uh, I look at like cycling workouts and stuff sometimes, or even triathlon, when they get up into some of those like really massive training weeks, just think to myself, it's like, even if that physiologically made sense, um, to do on a regular basis, eventually you get to a point where it's like, you don't even want to be there anymore. And if you find yourself at the start of a race and you're already sick of being there, then it's like, <laughs> you're not going to be able to push as hard as you, you're not gonna be able to take it to that next level when the, when it gets really tough in like the final 20% of the event. A hundred percent. And I think that's like, you know, so much of, of my mantra and training is I, I do all my, I program my own training. Like I, my coach, so my coach and I work together on like some of the, the bigger picture stuff, but like the day-to-day -day training I'm, I'm programming in myself. And yeah, that's the question I ask myself a lot of times is like, okay, like, am I going to hate myself at the end of this week? Like, like, and if <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. So then like, maybe it's worth like, you know, changing up a little bit. And, and cause that is like, you know, I'd rather get to the start line 5% less fit, but 20% happier than, than the other way around. Um, you know, I, I would take that any day of the week. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's one thing I've been playing around with a little bit in the current training block I'm in right now is like, like in 2019 and 2020 was goofy from a race standpoint, but from a training standpoint, things were fairly normal um, for me anyway. And I, you know, usually I'll compartmentalize a lot of the different intensities where I'm working on weaknesses and least specific race intensity stuff earlier in my training, and then kind of working towards more specific stuff. And uh, I'm still very much doing that, but I've been playing around with just a little more of a blended approach too, where like, uh, you know, instead of doing like a week where I'm mainly focusing on like short intervals and then, you know, maybe four to six weeks later, start focusing on like lactate threshold type work and kind of moving through the spectrum that way. I've been blending them together and it's like, part of it is just a lot more exciting. It's like, oh, if I, on Tuesday, I get a run short and fast on Thursday, I get a kind of get to that you know, that like 60 minute intensity and just kind of grind out for, for a mile or two at a time. And, and, uh, sometimes having like something different every couple of days does make it a little more exciting versus just locking and loading the exact same workout every day, weekend and week out and kind of finding that, that, that boredom side of things. Hey folks, I want to make a quick shout out to some of my personal athlete sponsors and offer all of you some discount options if you think my gear is also right for you. My shoe of choice, Ultra Footwear, is offering listeners 15% off. They make a foot-shaped balanced cushioned shoe that fits like a glove. S-Fuels is offering 5% off and they are my go-to low-carb workout and lifestyle product of choice. Eggweights is offering 15% off their running form, strength work, and recovery products. Finally, Purpose Performance Wear is offering 10% off my favorite workout apparel, including my own signature series. So head over to zackbitter.com forward slash my gear or the profile link on my social media channels to check out these discounts and more. All right, folks, now back to the show. I think 2020 probably had that for a lot of people because racing was taken off, off the, the, you know, taken out of the picture. Uh, there was a lot more people that were kind of like, okay, well then I, I, I'll do this, this, you know, I'll change up a little bit. I'll do some different stuff. I have a lot longer until I need to be fit 
So like I can take longer to get there and, and have a little bit more fun with it. I, I think that's certainly something that, that, um, you know, was, was fairly common. And if we look at the professional running races that are happening now and the PBs that are happening, and there's definitely an element of, of, you know, the shoes that are, that are helping that, but the shoes were also around, uh, to a large, to, a, to a smaller extent in 2019. So, mm-hmm. you know, you can't cop up you know, all of the times to the shoes. Um, I think some of that at least is the athletes benefiting from a year of, of training and maybe training in slightly different ways and incorporating different stuff. And, um, and then also just being really excited to race. I think there's a lot that can be said for athletes being starved of racing and then getting, finally getting that opportunity again, and just being really excited versus a normal, you know, indoor season where you're kind of like the monotony of like, all right, like I gotta go and do these races and stuff. And and now you're like, Oh God, I get to go do these races. Like, (laughs) I think that attitude shift just has a, a, you know, an impact on performance that that's worth talking about. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I wonder how much more that would have even happened had like, at the beginning of 2020, everyone knew, yeah, races are basically off the table for a full year. Cause like that, that's the biggest knock on trying anything a little bit outside of the box. In my opinion is like, I mean, it's, when you get to these sports, when you get to like Olympic distance sports, like there's so much research in a lot of cases, um, especially for like 5k, 10k, the track events where there is a, there is a lot more incentive to say, this is the right way to do it. And there's really not a whole lot of reason to deviate from it. I need to find a way to make this work. Cause that's going to ultimately get me to my fastest potential time. But then like, you know, you get someone who's maybe not, doesn't fit the norm perfectly and could benefit from like an alternate ulterior approach. And they're given a year where they don't have to race or they can't race. Now they have a chance to kind of play around with something. They don't have to think of it as like, I could try something different, but if it doesn't work, then I just basically wasted a year of my racing career. Uh, it does kind of give you a little bit of a, 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 maybe a generational opportunity, I guess. Yeah, definitely. And I, I, to, you know, we've done these research studies down in Australia year after year, um, weren't, wasn't able to get down there this year and do them. But you know, after the first couple of times we did it, like we knew that it was, it was beneficial, even though like we were doing these diet studies, we were experimenting with, um, low energy availability. We were experimenting with low carb, high fat stuff and, and, you know, whatever diet intervention we were on, even if like our training suffered during that time period, the effect of like being on that training camp, um, you know, with two dozen different athletes from all around the world that are all pushing you to be great. When you came off the diet and got back into your normal thing, we all benefited from that, from that training camp effect. And mm-hmm. I remember like then and after those first couple of years, like trying to get athletes to come out and do it. And they're being like, Oh no, like it's, it's a world championship year. Like I can't try anything different. Like, yeah, but like y- you finished 30th at the world championships like last year, like maybe you should try something different. Like, 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 um, like it was just amazing. The, the pushback to like trying those different things when it's like, well, it's it. like, look at, look at how well, you know, that thing worked for, it might not work for you, but like it, it might work really well. And, and like, is it not worth trying? And, you know, I did, I experimented with, with my first high fat, um, high fat diet in November, 2015, whatever that is like, 10 months before the Olympics mm-hmm. and people were like, Oh, aren't you worried about doing this? Like, I'm like, no, like <laughs> worst case, worst case scenario, it doesn't work for me. And then I have nine months of being on my normal diet before the Olympics. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it was like, well, yeah, like this is the perfect time to try this because you know, what, like 
the, there's no downside. The, the downside was slogging through training for four weeks, feeling like crap built incredible mental resiliency, mm-hmm. um, that, that benefited me when I, when I, you know, came back to my, my normal nutrition, normal training, like it, it always, it, I guess the point I'm trying to make is like, yeah, don't be afraid to try new things. And like, don't make excuses for not trying new things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think like, especially with nutrition too, it seems like, like sometimes I think people get in a mindset of like, once, if I decide I'm going to try this new way, there's no going back, which as you explained, like, yeah, you can definitely go back. In fact, you have very good precedent from just a lifetime of eating the way that you had before of knowing kind of like, this is how I feel with this protocol. And it gives you like folks like yourself who've tested your physical limits time and time again for, you know, year after year after year are really interesting people to to look at this stuff with, because you have a very intimate relationship with, you know, leaving it all out there, so to speak, and a variety of different context points from training to racing at a variety of different distances, different intensities. I mean, I I think it's, you know, one of the reasons why running perceived effort is still kind of the gold standard in a lot of cases, because it's like, you get a runner who's got a lot of experience. They can really feel what it's like to run a short interval intensity versus like a long interval intensity or, what the pace tolerance they'll have for five kilometers versus 10 kilometers versus a half marathon. And uh, yeah, so to have someone like yourself or your competitors doing things like that, I think it's really valuable because you have so have really unique reference points versus say someone who's just getting into running or they've been to running, but they haven't taken it all that seriously. You know, they make an intervention and see a big improvement. It's really hard to recognize whether they had gotten to like, the peak of what they were capable of doing, given the old, the old scenario and, uh, you know, being able to compare that. Yeah. And I think like perfectly encapsulate that was so in November, 2015, I did, we did three and a half weeks of, of high fat and like soup, like incredibly rigorously controlled, like every calorie I was consuming was, was measured out and, and did all our testing, did all that stuff, came off the diet. And three weeks later, back on my normal diet, I set the Canadian record and PB by six over six minutes in the, in the 50 K and the immediate reaction was to say, Oh, wow. Like, you know, maybe, maybe the, this, this diet is, you know, maybe there's something to be said here. And we didn't have any research for, uh, um, for those like three weeks after the intervention, but it was kind of like, okay, well, I did that thing. I came off of it and I raced really well. That's amazing. That I felt great. I wonder if there's anything there. And then we were lucky enough to then the next year do the exact same study, but then continue to measure for those three weeks to see, is there anything there? And, and, and what we ended up finding out was that it's, it, you know, the, the benefits weren't necessarily from the diet um, and any, and anything that happened, but anything that anything detrimental that happened, you know, to me personally on the diet was undone very quickly coming off the diet. Mm-hmm. And so we were, you know, we were kind of able to use that, um, because of, of having those resources available, we could say, okay, well, we did this thing. This is how it made me feel. If I didn't know any better, I could maybe then correlate those two, but then we had the opportunity to test both theories and then find out like, oh, okay, no, like that correlating that might've been a mistake. Um, Mm-hmm. But, but as you say, for, for people that don't have, you know, the luxury of, of having 
internationally renowned sports science sports scientists yeah. um, you know measure these things out for you um, it, it's a lot easier to draw conclusions especially if you're you know early on in your journey like you say and, and no matter what you do you're going to improve um, but that's not to say if, if you're having fun with it and you enjoy it and you're happy with how you're performing doesn't make you wrong yeah and I think there's 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 some individuality with a lot of that stuff too, where like, you know, I, we think of some of Finney's earlier studies too, where like the results, even if they come out neutral, when you start looking at the individual participants, you get some folks improving, some folks digressing and some folks staying neutral. And it's like, well, which one of those participants are you, or is mm -hmm. there more consistency? And there was just limitations with the study itself and all those other things. Cause with a lot of these, like, I mean, a lot of those, the, the Louise Burke studies are just phenomenally put together, but with any study, there's always another question to ask. So <laughs> yeah, you end up in a situation where like you ask the questions you can, or in some cases you ask the questions that you have the funding for, and then you, you answer them. But then you know, there's, there's the other like three dozen questions that you weren't able to answer that everyone's clamoring about. And then you might probably wait another year to try to get to, to one of those three dozen. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And then the question we always had was, well, three and a half weeks isn't long enough to adapt. And we're like, okay, well, maybe you're right. We have these metrics that say, okay, my, you know, I was burning 1.6 or whatever it was grams of fat per minute. Like, it seems like we're pretty adapted. Um, but like, you may be right. Or maybe there's other stuff that's going on. We just don't have the millions of dollars it would require to do a, you know, do an eight months. And so I was always my, my reply to those people that would get very mad at me for speaking about the results of our study. I would always say, well, hey, look, if you want to give me a hundred grand, I will do this <laughs> for eight months, like happily, <laughs> but like, this is not the, the reality that we're in, unfortunately. So like we answered the question that we asked or, you know, Louise answered the question that was asked and, and, and always posed it, always, you know, you know, prefaced it with, this is the question we asked and answered. There are other questions left to be, left to be, left to be answered um, mm -hmm. for sure. Yeah. And it's always like, there's always a, when, when you have any of these studies, especially with like, I think the sports that we're in, it's, it's, there's a, there's, it's early enough or it's, it's there's a, a smaller pool of like potential things to choose from that like at the end of each one of these things it's always like this needs to be explored more because it does and it's like it, it, you know yeah but it's it's such a hard thing because it's like well we 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 know what we know and we don't know what we don't know so like we have to make a recommendation and uh you know ultimately like people don't always look at it. I think the way that the researchers intend it to be is like, here's some, here's, here's an information point. Like ultimately you can do what you want to do. This is what our study showed um, with this group of people. So like, I think having that information is, is definitely valuable. So like you can, you can do with it what you want, but um, it is what it is. It's, it's there and you can, you can yeah, see the, my, my favorite supernova study that I think probably most people haven't looked at because it wasn't as exciting was the meth was the study that basically outlined all the methods that we did in supernova. Cause when you start to look at, you know, what that study took and like the, the amount of control and rigor and buy-in it required from, from, you know, two dozen athletes and, and dozens more staff, um, that to me was the most fascinating study. Cause you're like, how did you, how did we do this? How did we pull this off? Yeah. Um, you know, I remember, I remember coming in to do a DEXA scan. I was the first one, first one, first one up in the morning. So it was like, I had to be there at like five 30 in the morning. I kind of stumble in all, all sleepy. 
kind of moaning about now, oh, like this is nah, stupid getting up this early. And the, 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 you know, the, the woman doing the DEXA thing had to be there at three 30 to turn the machine on. Yeah, yeah. And, and you're like, okay, like, yeah, I guess all right, I shouldn't be, I shouldn't be this upset about this. And it, it honestly, like those studies beyond any of the results they got, like for me, the biggest takeaway was just the camaraderie between staff and athletes and, and you're, what it left you with is some of the most knowledgeable athletes, um, endurance athletes on the planet, because we had all these amazing PhD researchers at our disposal to just bounce questions off of constantly. Um, and so even though, like, even though we were focused on, on the nutrition aspect of it, like we'd all be there watching our VO2 max, max tests, asking, asking about what all these numbers mean and all this different stuff. And like the amount of knowledge that the athletes took away from it, um, it was incredible. And, and, and the camaraderie between the re, the researchers and the, the athletes as well, like, you know, going for drinks when the study's over with, with your researchers is, uh, is a hell of a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. You probably were never more excited to put together your next training block after that, with all that, all those data points. I know, um, I was fortunate to participate in the faster study back in 2014, like just the, the number of different things that, that they looked at even, even outside of the, the dietary like aspect of that, of that study was just really cool to say, okay, I have this num- these numbers now I have my fat oxidation rates. I have all these things. Now I can start actually putting together like a, a race fueling strategy, personal, personal to me versus, you know, just kind of like guessing a little bit more or leaning a little more on like field tests in order to kind of figure out what's going to work or not work. Yeah. Like being able, like having two DEXA scans in, in four weeks at your disposal to see that like, you know, all right. Yeah. I dropped, I dropped 3% body fat in a, in a four week training camp. Like it's really great to know that's something you can do so that next time I go into a four week training camp feeling like, Oh crap. Like I'm not in like, you know, I'm not in the the shape I need to be to perform. I can have the confidence to be like, well, no, I, four weeks is enough to get there. Like I know I can, you know, lean out and, and get race into my race weight in four weeks. Like just those little, little data points that give you confidence and knowledge like going forward are, are, are invaluable to the athlete. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Do uh, I'm guessing like uh, most folks in the race walking, especially at your caliber are leaning into like a moderate to higher carbohydrate diet uh, even before these studies or am I, is there a little more exploratory in your side versus say kind of this, the Olympic distance running events, or is it pretty much uh, skewed more towards that? It's, it's pretty skewed towards that. I don't really know any athletes that are, are experimenting on their own um, with high fat stuff. Um, I, I think where we differ from some of like, say the Olympic marathoners, is I think the race walkers have always been better at carbs we, like like taking carbs in races one because of the control that we talked about already but i think I, the race walkers tend at least you know the 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 few dozen that i hang out with and train with tend to be more in tune to the research um and, and a little and I, i've had friends i've had friends that have relayed stories of talking to marathoners who were like blown away that that we eat breakfast before a long run. Like that was the level of like, like, well, no, don't you just like go out and like run. Um, and so like, you know, taking in 60 to 90 grams of carbs an hour, that was just kind of like normal for, for most of the race walkers that at least, you know, I spent my career training with. 
Um, that was kind of like, yeah, that's just what you do. Like why that's, that's what the science says you do. Why would you not do that? And then hearing from, from a lot of marathon runners that that's like a, an unattainable goal in some cases of, of getting to that, that 60, um, let alone, you know, 90 or above. So, um, you know, I think, yeah, race walking is definitely the race are skewed towards Mark, the carb end of it. And I think traditionally we've, we've done that a little bit better than the marathoners have. Yeah. Do you think that's, I guess maybe I should start with this question. Is there like a gastrointestinal variance in the race walking technique versus the running mechanics of a marathon that would make it easier to digest 60 to 90 grams of carbohydrate? I think there's, there's certainly an element of that. Um, you're just gonna, you have a little bit less sloshing around your stomach with, with the race walk technique. Um, so there is certainly that. Um, but uh, you know, that said, I think there are a lot of runners who have started off not being able to take in train their stomach by actually like practicing their race nutrition, um, you know, over and over again, have been able to train their body to take in more. And I think, you know, that's, I think we're, and we're, we're, we've seen studies now that show that, that, that Morton basically does nothing like Morton isn't anything, not improving, uh, you know, it's not improving intestinal, like, you know, carbs getting into the bloodstream at all. It's just, they've, it's been an amazing, um, what I think they've done better than anyone else is just convince marathoners that fueling is very important. You know, I think that's been there, um, you know, until other studies come out and, and potentially show that they do have um, any sort of benefit. Like to me, what they've done so well is convince athletes that fueling is, is something they need to take really seriously. Um, so I think that's, you know, on top of the shoes, I think we have seen in the last, last four or five years, marathoners focusing a little bit more on making sure they, they, they hit their fueling properly. And that's probably also adding to the less yeah, fueling the less bonking that we're seeing after 35 K. Yeah. It seems like, like the, the, the marathon intensity, I oftentimes felt like people maybe got into, like, it might've been a cultural thing where like when they first got popular, there wasn't a whole lot of intra race fueling outside of maybe some like flat Coca-Cola or something like that. And you kind of got used to this idea where it was just like not appetizing to eat when you were running that intensity. So hmm. then people maybe like avoided it to a degree and they never got around to really testing where the limits are with it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's always like the, the interesting part. Cause I think like when you get events that are short enough, like, you know, two to four hours, you, you can really do, you can be pretty liberal with what you throw at your gut in a lot of cases. So like, I think like when, when we're looking at it through that lens, there is that, that, that intensity zone, that you get into where it's, it's not long enough to really be able to lean heavily on like the extra steps that it's going to take to break down fat, metabolize it and use it as an energy source, uh, and still perform at your peak, you know, versus something that, you know, is longer, like a 24 hour race where the intensity is going to be like, you know, 60 below 65% of your VO two max, in which case you probably just have a lot more, a lot more potential options available to you, which it could be, it, it can be good if you're, if the standard protocol is not working for you and you're looking for a second option or it could be bad because now you have to make a decision as to what you want to do. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly. I mean, for my race for, for a three hour and 40 minute race, like having a higher fat oxidation rate could be helpful, but if it even came, you know, 
anywhere close to, um, you know, to affecting my, my ability to utilize carbs or increasing my, you know, my, my O2, um, my O2 use for that same pace, then it becomes negative. And, and that's what the supernova studies saw. But as you say, if your race is now 24 hours and you have way more wiggle room where an extra couple percent, you know, VO2, um, max for that same pace, isn't threatening to you. Like it's not going to put you over that threshold, which for me at a three hour, 40 minute race, like you're so close to that threshold that any little bit is going to put you over. So that's negative. If you have that way bigger buffer, then yeah, like increasing your fat utilization is a great idea. And, um, yeah, I think, I think, yeah, finding those individualized approaches and, and being able to like figure out what the requirements of, of your event are, and then what the best sort of case practices, and then like what you want to get out of it. Like, what's your goal? Do you want to like, do you want to just, do you want to finish this thing as happily as possible? Do you want to finish this thing as fast as possible? Do you want to like, like, you know, there's, there's, especially when you're looking at those ultra endurance races, I think there's so many different strategies that um, can be utilized and you just got to sort of say, okay, like what's the pros and cons of each one for me personally? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the fun part of the sport really, to be honest, it's like, there's, it's when you get into the longer stuff, the less explored, so the less research stuff, there is just a little bit of, uh, um, kind of fun playing around turning yourself into a little bit of a, of a lab experiment. (laughs) Um, but yeah, no, I think this is, uh, you, you know, who, who introduced to me something really interesting kind of in this that really, I think shows the context a bit too is, or just adds another element to the puzzle is uh, I had him, I had Alan Cousins. He's got a performance lab in Boulder, Colorado. And he said he was working with an athlete that they, they tested him on the metabolic cart and they realized like he did need to improve his fat oxidation rates. And this athlete, I want to say was a triathlete if I'm not mistaken, but he, he was following like a moderate carbohydrate diet and he wasn't too, he wasn't motivated to try improving his fat oxidation rates by like reducing his carbohydrate intake. So what they did is they looked at how he was consuming carbohydrates. He basically had them kind of spread out throughout the day. So there was like, you know, probably like a 14 to upwards 16 hour window of time where he was eating and, you know, the carbs just kind of spread out throughout that they ended up taking the carbohydrates he was eating in the same quantities and just kind of backloading them into the day. And, uh, he had, so he was getting the same amount of carbohydrate intake as he had before, but he just repositioned them. His fat oxidation rates went up by just doing that. He didn't even actually change his macronutrient ratios at all. And that's like, I think, you know, and we saw that a little bit in the supernova studies when we were looking at comparing a periodized diet. So exactly what you're saying, like same amount of carbs, but just, you know, playing out where you, where you space them versus a, just a normal, normal, moderate carbohydrate diet. Um, but you know, when you're doing a hundred miles a week, uh, you know, at the level that, that, you know, at least the athletes in our study were doing it at, it's impossible not to be doing some of your training periodized. You know, and when I mentioned doing a 40 K in the morning and doing a 10 K tempo in the afternoon, you're not doing that with full carb stores. So (laughs) a lot, like whether, whether you like it or not, a lot of athletes who are putting in this, this mileage are doing a lot of, a lot of, you know, carb depleted training just because it's impossible not to. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, and and we sort of, the results from those studies basically showed there wasn't much of a difference between periodized and just normal diet. And and there was kind of some confusion about why that should be at first. And I was like, well, of course, like it's impossible not to be doing that. If you're doing, doing a hundred miles a week at, at, at 
you know, varying intensities and stuff. So, um, yes. And, and again, that, that if you're not doing hundred miles a week, if you're, if you're someone who's, you know, doing 50 or 60 miles a week, then certainly like looking at periodizing your, your carbohydrates is a, is a great way to improve your fat oxidation. If you're already doing hundred miles a week, you've probably already found those benefits just because there's no way around it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a lot, it's, it's a lot harder to, uh, to find yourself in a position where you're not testing every little thing on accident, almost when you're running that much or, or walking that much. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it does. It, I mean, it's the context piece to the conversation. So you get like the, yeah, the, a recreational athlete who, you know, they have a, a nine to five job, a family and, you know, for them to get in eight to 10 hours of training in a week is just this huge like, mm-hmm. accomplishment because there's only eight to 10 hours of extra time to even do anything extra. So, uh, you know, you find you, you, you have to kind of look at, well, where do I want to move the needle and how do I, how is it going to be best for me from just like an application standpoint, like in terms of, is it going to be a sustainable approach for me long-term versus something I'm not going to be able to stick to for more than half a year, maybe a week or something like that versus, uh, you know, a different approach that is, that that's going to work for you. And then those are all individual things. And, and uh, yeah, you know, so someone like that recreational athlete may not be in a position where they're operating at compromised glycogen stores at any point in their training, unless they kind of artificially induce it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and the only thing I want to add to that is that those athletes are the ones that inspire the crap out of me. Cause I, you know, I, whatever, 15 hours a week that I train, it's my job. Mm-hmm. I live on my own. I have no other things that need to get done during the day. And I find it exhausting sometimes. I'm just, I'm always so inspired by those people who just like love it so much that they fit it in around, you know, everything else they have going on in life. It's, it's, it amazes me. I, it, sort of not, not the point of what you're saying, but that's all I could think about when you, when you brought that, that person up going like, yeah, those people amaze me. Yeah. The thing I find the most fascinating about that group is for me, like if I wake up and I was planning on doing a workout from like eight until 10 or something like that, um, which is a pretty big luxury to begin with, you know, most people are going to probably be at work by eight. So (laughs) um, on top of that, if I don't feel great and decide in order to execute this workout properly, I'm going to shift it to three in the afternoon and work on something else before that I can do that. Whereas, you know, most people, they have that window of time available and if they don't get it in there, they're not going to get it in. So they have to decide, do I go in and try to like slog this thing out or do I skip it? And then all of a sudden go from eight or 10 potential hours of training this week down to eight. And it's, it's, it's a way it, it, like even when we're looking at the same sport, the contexts are limitless. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, one, one final thing before I let you go, Evan, cause you've been really generous with your time, uh, is, uh, I've got this project coming up this year called the transcontinental run where I'm going to try to get from San Francisco to New York by foot as fast as I can. And, uh, I'm doing it as a way to raise, raise awareness and funds for a charity called fight for the forgotten. And I can't think that b- or what I can think about from a performance standpoint on this project is like how much application there will be for some walking stuff. So for someone like myself who has essentially a lifelong experience of running and really other than walking in day-to-day life, no experience with performance walking, we'll call it. uh, Are there maybe two or three kind of startup tips or procedures that you would recommend me looking into first, if I'm going to try to implement some, uh, speedier walking into something like that. 
Yeah, for sure. And I mean, for something like that, which is, I mean, it's incredible, by the way. Um, I'm, I'm really excited to cheer you on for that. Um, when you're looking at, you know, so you're someone who's just looking at throwing in some race walking or some speed walking or some power walking or whatever you want to refer to it as into the, into your training or into something like that. Like certainly the best thing you can do is just, you're focusing on, on striking down with your heel, rolling to the rolling to your toe and then pushing off on your toe. One thing that people try to do is they try to make their stride really, really big in front of them. They try to reach out really far in front of them and they land at their heel and their, you know, their body's way behind their leg. And then they got to pull their body over their leg. You don't want to be doing that. You want to be landing your leg, uh, you know, 15, 20 centimeters, maybe in front of your body. Um, most of your power is going to come from, from behind. So you're going to have about 60 to 70% of your stride behind, behind your body. So it's really a propulsion thing rather than, you know, landing and pulling yourself forward. You're going to be pushing yourself forward. Um, and so that's, that's one thing is that, you know, focusing on the heel rolling to the toe and, and not over striding. Um, and then the other thing is the arms. The arms are very different in race walking than they are in running, running. The arms are kind of just along for the ride more or less, uh, in race walking, because you are spreading out your center of mass a little bit more than you do with running. You're not as compact. The arms are a little bit, a little bit more engaged just to balance you out and keep you sort of, you know, keep you centered. Um, so I like to explain to people to pretend like you're, um, elbowing someone in, uh, in the face behind you and you're punching them, punching someone in the kidneys ahead of you. That's sort of the range of motion you're thinking about. Um, you know, arms are staying sort of 90 to 110 degrees, um, bent at the elbow throughout the whole whole motion and you're just bringing that fist a little bit back past the hip. And then as you come up, it's almost like you're pulling a rope in front of you. You're almost kind of reaching out, pulling that rope and then pulling yourself forward type of motion. Um, and that'll basically just help find rhythm with the legs. Um, if you're looking it is, it is, and that's sort of what gives it its funny little look. Cause it looks, you know, it, it looks like someone, you know, hustling for the bathroom uh, <laughs> is the way it's described most often. And you get that because it is kind of slinky. It's kind of the, the legs and the arms are, are sort of more spread out than when you're running, you kind of, it looks less coordinated. Um, but it's basically, you're doing that just to keep your, your center of gravity, like nice and compact in the middle. And, and that is sort of the most effective, efficient way to move forward. Um, so those would be the sort of the, the two very quick tips. Um, and then just like, hopping on YouTube. There's, there's always some good videos with some drills and stuff that, that help you to go faster. You just it's high cadence. So, you know, trying to get yourself up to taking hundred and 180 steps a minute, if you can, um, and just really focusing on that lower leg being, being what sort of swings you through quickly, that pendulum from as soon as you push off, getting that foot forward as quickly as possible, getting the heel down is, is kind of where you'll, you'll start picking up speed. Awesome. Well, I don't know if you're going to see me breaking any seven minute miles with that over the course of the transcon. In fact, you might not see me running any seven miles <laughs> on the transcon. So, but either way, I'm, I'm, I intend to start implementing that into some of my training as I start preparing for that specifically. I think it's going to be a fun kind of little add on to kind of keep things exciting as, as I look to put in a lot more hours than I normally would with that particular project, but I yeah, just, just keep moving forward. That's all you got to do, yeah. right? It's one day at a time. I'll get there eventually. So um, I'm looking forward to it. But uh, Evan, it's been awesome to talk to you, get to know you a little bit, hear about your career and your training and everything there 
that you've had to been able to share with us about race walking. Is there any spots that you hang out online that you'd like to share with the listeners so they can go check out what you're up to? Yeah, for sure. I, all, all of my socials are just at Evan Dunphy. Um, I'm, I'm very prolific on Twitter. Um, pretty it's not for to my speak my voice. So, um, yeah, I think I'm a pretty good follow there. Um, and then I post all my training on Strava as well. Um, so if people are interested in seeing what I'm up to, um, that's a good place to, to find me as well. And then, yeah, I'll occasionally post random selfies of my bedhead on Instagram, <laughs> less exciting. I'd probably steer people away from that, but, um, certainly Twitter and Strava are sort of where I find myself being the most interesting. <laughs> What I heard right there is everyone follow you on Instagram. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. I'll be sure to link those in the show notes, folks. So if you want to go check out what Evan's up to, feel free to head over there um, and geek out over his Strava Strava data, if nothing else. Uh, But other than that, thank you so much for taking some time to come on HPO. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. It It was awesome. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please consider checking out my website at ZachBitter.com or my social media channels at ZachBitter on Instagram, at ZBitter on Twitter, and at Zach.Bitter on Facebook. You can also support the show by subscribing and leaving a review on your favorite podcast platform. If you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to send me an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.